This is the Safari. The Safari is a tour around the consumer, brand, and retailing industry. And we have the great privilege here at my company, Traub, to really be exposed to many of the great minds of the industry who are forming and shaping the future of many different parts of the consumer, brand, and retail world. And I felt it was quite interesting for us to be able to not only learn from all of those people as we do every day, but uh, memorialize it into a podcast which could then be shared with many of our friends and clients and, and you, obviously, the listener. Today, we're talking about bringing brands to life in physical spaces. We have the CEO of StreetSense, Brian Taff, as well as Brian Miller, who is the chief creative over there at StreetSense, and Kelsey Groom, our very own Kelsey Groom from Traub, Senior Managing Director at Traub, who will be joining us in a discussion about placemaking, branding, architecture, and many more things about the future of design. So this is a, a really fun thing for me to do. I've, this is our, our first four-way podcast. One of you on the telephone, and I've got Brian Taff here in, in the city, and Kelsey's here as well. So Kelsey Groom, Senior Managing Director of Traub, mm -hmm. also board member of Street Sense, so it sort of links yeah. it all together very gracefully. And the subject today is really about the power of placemaking in branding. And I can't think of any firm better equipped to speak about this and really our mutual uh, interest in, in, in design and branding and bringing uh, stories to life through placemaking is something that brings us together, our two firms. And so first of all, welcome. And Brian Taff, just tell us a little bit about um, Street Sense from your perspective and your history there. Great. Well, uh, really excited to be with you guys. And Brian uh, with us uh, remote. So I, I came to StreetSense, um, like many great things, by accident. Friends of mine were involved in bringing StreetSense to life uh, nearly 20 years ago as uh, retail experts, uh, really in brokerage and, and urban planning, thinking about how retail environments would come together. Uh, really based in Washington, D.C., uh, we were all from D.C., and the idea was we wanted to not just uh, pepper uh, our neighborhoods with any kind of retail. We wanted it to work. We were mostly focused on retail, and then we started to go down this road of thinking about what was really important to people and to consumers. And we felt like it was the experience that uh, they were trying to have, the neighborhoods that we were trying to create, and the community that was the result of those things. Uh, and at that time, we really started bringing together some incredible designers and artists, some thinkers. Uh, some food experts, bring them all together to think about, you know, how we could bring these experiences to life. And Kelsey, you um, came across Street Sense uh, through some of your activities here. Uh, tell me or tell us a little bit about why you are so impressed. I mean, you've seen every great design firm, architectural firm, probably anywhere. Uh, why are you so impressed with Street Sense and how they're different? So. Uh 
I would say the common theme that I saw across the street since work, which is everything from store design through branding and marketing, is this lens towards community building. And they do it very thoughtfully and do they bring things to life that have a global appeal but at a hyper-localized level. And I think that's part of the magic in what they do. And presumably at scale as well. At scale, yeah. And so we have Brian on the phone. Uh, why don't you t- tell us a little bit about your function over there? Are you the, the, the creative mind, the genius. <laughs> um, well, I'm the senior design director for interior architecture. So most of what I do deals with interior spaces and kind of creating those environments uh, for end users primarily. And uh, I started off uh, at Street Sense kind of working more in the restaurant bar side that led over into some retail, then into multifamily, into office interiors, into hotel. So we're really doing pretty much just any interior space at this point that's driven by that kind of end user experience with a hospitality approach. And how do you, in your words, you know, given that your background in design, um, I'm sure is... Uh, some longevity to it, how are you, in your words, describing the differentiating factor of the sort of holistic approach to bringing um, placemaking and design to life for your clients? How is it different in street sense? Well, I think what we're really looking at is the nature of spaces as social spaces, as places where people go and interact with each other. Um, that can be fundamentally different from the nature of private spaces for people, which are obviously a vital part of life. Um, but with everything that we're doing, we really concentrate on making those spaces sort of a backdrop on how people are interacting and the ability, you know, I think everybody talks about creating experiences, but the idea of creating a sense of belonging for people and making sure that the experiences they have are really memorable and cohesive, something that you know, even in the moment, some things that are like really nice kind of slip away after they're done, whether it's, you know, watching a movie, listening to a piece of music, a meal, a time out of the space. So trying to do those things that really have some stickiness to them in somebody's mind uh, and really feels like a, a memorable thing that they've done. So Kelsey, that that word belonging sort of makes me think of the the piece that you co-authored around the, the pagan consumer or, or uh, meaning or mindfulness in consumerism. How does that tie into some of the things you're seeing with your work and your clients in the broader consumer space? I think what belonging is meaning and resonating with people uh, in the world today is we live, as you know, in a very online, hyper-digitalized world. And the notion of creating spaces where people can interact and engage and touch and feel with brands or each other in a different way is ultimately what the consumer is very thirsty for. And, and therefore, you know, there's this quote of yours, Brian Taft. We have two Brians here. Two shades <laughs> of Brian. Two, two, kind, two shades of Brian. <laughs> Real estate is built for generations, but experiences happen in moments and minutes. Do you want to sort of elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, there's a really uh, interesting uh, interplay between the dynamics of building something that is really designed by its nature to last for a period of time. Uh, we think about it like a stage, as an example. Um, but the things that happen, you know, at that place uh, are really essential to the time in which they're taking place. 
So I think while we recognize, as Brian talks about, you know, these things that we're creating really are the backdrop, you know, for the places where, you know, people interact. And we think in a lot of ways the same thing as it relates to real estate. We have to think long term uh, in terms of the, the, the construct of buildings, uh, neighborhoods, communities. But at the same time, we really focus on what's happening there you know, within, within the moment. And we really believe that today uh, brands and consumers have expectations that are not necessarily fleeting, but these expectations that are uh, driving what's going on at a particular place at a particular time. And so the fluidity is really you know, essential. So we think about as we're designing, we're thinking about things where it's the activation of space, the design for space, what's happening at any given time, is that it's really meant for those moments uh, in which they're taking place, while the real estate really can be that stage for it take, you know, where, where, where it takes place. One of the things when I met Brian Miller that I was so impressed with was the work, Brian, that you've done really in creating some of the most iconic restaurants around the world. And what struck me was that we speak a lot at Traub about this notion of retail hospitality. I'd love your perspective on how what you do can translate into the retail world. Uh, I think with the work we do on this sort of uh, restaurant spaces, first of all, there's, uh, for me, a restaurant is a little bit easier than most retail spaces because you get that dwell time. You know, somebody's going to be there 90 minutes, two hours, maybe longer. So you have kind of a longer chance to create uh, that impression for them when they're really in the space. But not just from a spatial standpoint. You know, obviously, we're talking about the atmosphere. We're talking about the service. Um, the smell of the space, all these different elements. But I think the most important thing in creating the really successful versions of those that linger with people are ones where we make sure that, A, of course, that we're paired with really excellent operators for these places. Um, But even more important, I think that what the critical piece is, is that the offering of what they're doing in the space, whether it's you know, the food, what they're going for, the kind of hospitality atmosphere, the overall impression um, that the spaces we design really convey that and convey that on a subconscious level to people that when they walk in, they understand what this place is, who it's built for, what it's supposed to be, how you're supposed to kind of celebrate or be quiet in that space, how you're supposed to kind of conduct yourself within these within these spaces and understanding that on a subconscious level is so crucial. So I think all these little cues that, so when somebody sees, you know, the price of a dish or the format of a menu or what they're offering or not offering, that it's not a surprise that they've already been given all these little cues that tell them this is kind of what you're going to get here and that they kind of have come to an understanding about that. It's always the most depressing thing for me. Like when I see people walk up to a restaurant and sit down get menus and then kind of like look at each other and walk up and leave without ordering. It kind of means that everything with that environment and the way they're greeted and everything else has done a bad job of setting those expectations versus where they land. The, the, um, when I listen to you and you're talking about the details and there's this famous expression that retails in the detail and, and the fact is pretty much anything is in the detail. Um, but do you feel that the convergence and maybe the success of your platform is that you're really cross-functional. 
you are not siloed as maybe architects on the one side, business people on the other, uh, brand designers on the other, Th that you're all really looking at a problem holistically. Because if there's been one theme on this on this podcast is that those companies that are thinking uh, across different parts of their brain and and all together on different problems and coming up with one solution uh, are the winners. D does that sort of ring a chord with you? Yeah, I mean, I, I believe that during the design process, obviously, it's really important to have empathy for all the stakeholders and all the consultants and all the needs and you know, the needs of the the place, the city, the business, etc. Um, so to kind of be able to look at it from everyone's point of view is really crucial to coming up with the right answer from your small slice of that. So when we're surrounded by these people who are retail brokers and uh, branding people and creative strategy people and engagement and graphic designers and base building architects and planners, like to have all those kind of in a room or even adjacent to you, um, I think you just start to see their perspectives in a much different way. You know, there's that kind of active collaboration you can have, but just what you learn from being around these people for years, their point of view, what makes something successful for them or what creates challenges for them. You may do something that's great for your practice, but you kind of create a domino effect that may make it very difficult for somebody else. So understanding the interplay of all that and then ultimately all that is in service of not just the client, but we always say that we, our seat at the table is to represent kind of the eyes of the end user and think about regardless of what makes sense operationally, aesthetically, et cetera, when somebody walks in that door, how are they feeling? What do they want to see? What do they want to, you know, experience? So I, I think that kind of empathy is incredibly important in being surrounded by all these different trades, all these different people is an important part of understanding that other side. Yeah, creating the memory and the moment. You, you were talking just now about various stakeholders and uh, real estate professionals among them. And I think talking about convergence, it's kind of fascinating that a relatively um, uh, small in scale uh, design firm, but yet nationally renowned compared to its partner, uh, which is uh, CBRE, one of the largest, I think, Fortune 500 companies, um, that has this uh, chip inside their brain that says, you know what, we need to own an architectural firm or a branding agency. Talk about that. I mean, I find that convergence kind of fascinating. I also find it quite um, quite interesting from a, from a commercial perspective because it's wonderful to see a very large organization uh, playing with a relatively smaller uh, partner and actually uh, embracing it and using it to talk about how that came about and, and, and how it's going and what's going on with, with that partnership. So years ago, uh, we worked with lots of different uh, commercial real estate firms. CBRE, as, as you mentioned, is actually the world's largest uh, real estate services uh, company. I think they have over 100,000 employees compared to our just shy of 200. But what was very interesting was that when we would work with uh, organizations like CBRE, what we would find is that they were really the best in the world at understanding space. And they started to recognize the importance of what's happening in the space. And the idea of placemaking really started to take hold. And so we were, having a, we were starting to have a different kind of conversation. And then we we're starting to realize that value was being driven through creative thinking. And the ground floor plane was driving value upstairs, which is where these 
you know, large real estate companies make a lot of their money. Uh, so we start having some very interesting conversations uh, with CBRE. And uh, two years ago, they made a strategic investment in Street Sense, and we've been partnering with them. What's been great is that there really is this need to understand how do you commercialize the, the creative elements, these design elements, and the creative thinking to drive value to these very large real estate schemes, as well as these smaller, you know, but vitally important elements within real estate and within communities. You said something which I'd love both Kelsey and you to sort of elaborate on. You said something just now, which is the value was created upstairs. I think what you mean by that is that if you do the right thing at the maybe retail podium and you create this sense of place, that everything that you build above, whether it be residential, whether it be offices, are more desirable and therefore you can charge more for. And is that what you're saying? And, and can you sort of elaborate on that? Yeah. And I think, for Brian, it would be great to have your um, point of view as well. But, um, but Morty, you're saying exactly uh, it correctly, which is the ground floor plane, the places that people see at eye level, the places that people go, the social spaces that they connect and interact, um, they're very important to what's going on upstairs. Uh, understanding that I, you know, I live in the building or I work in the building where you know such and such is um, becomes very, you know, important. And not just you know what's there, but you know how it actually integrates. So the answer is yes. Whether it's multifamily, whether it's office, what's happening on that first floor is very, very critical to driving value to everything above it. And in a city like this one, there's a lot above it. Brian and Kelsey, Brian Miller and Kelsey. I, I do think it's obviously a, a critical piece of of what we do is is how that all integrates and i think it's because it's the really the public face of all these developments happens in a very small percentage of the square footage and that drives the impression of a development as a whole i mean it's really important to have quality residential space quality office space etc um but the way that both the public perceives those places and the way that people who live and work within these places perceive them, so much of that is driven by 2 to 5% of the space of a building that happens on the ground floor or the public rooftop, just those pieces that everybody engages with. So we find that an investment in those kind of public-facing areas can really shape, it's the only way to really shape the perception of the development mm -hmm. as a whole versus looking at 100% of the space and thinking it's going to, yeah. You know, most of it is going to be more or less kind of space that maybe, you know, to spec, uh, spaces where you don't know who the end user is, the occupier, you have a little less control over that space. So the ones that you can shape, that's your opportunity to control how people perceive everything within that, not just that small kind of amenity area or public space. I think a good example of that is, in our world, Kelsey, related. Um, we've worked with them for a decade plus on the Time Warner Center, Hudson Yards, their projects in the Middle East. And I mean, this, what we're hearing here is sort of part and parcel of, of their whole mission, correct? Yeah, I mean, it's really the DNA of how they build these massive mixed-use projects. But um, increasingly, we are all spending a large part of our lives within a certain radius. Um, eat, work, play, and the, the kind of and play part and the things that we do socially are so vital, vitally important um, to the rest of the project and have a huge halo effect on, on the kinds of tenants you will inevitably attract from a commercial and office standpoint as well. So, so we've spoken uh, just recently 
last few minutes about uh, the impact on a developer's scheme or project. Uh, you guys do a huge amount with brands as well. So, you know, Brian Miller, talk a little bit about, you, you touched on it at the beginning of the conversation, but if there were CEOs, presidents, leaders of brands listening right now, uh, what would you want them to uh, think about before engaging on this or embarking on this kind of a project uh, that they need to embrace or understand that you wish you wouldn't have to maybe convince them of yourself that they would already know before you met them is the first question. And secondly, maybe two or three hows of how you do things. So how do you actually go about coming up with a, a um, strategy and charrette, a design charrette that will embark everybody on this mission to come up with some incredible idea. I guess the creative process, the long-winded way of, of asking that question. So, yeah, I think for us, first of all, in terms of the creative process, um, we really heavily spend time, invest time in looking at kind of the neighborhood context of the places we're doing work. Uh, we started out with very locally based work um, that was, we kind of lived here. We knew the places. We innately understood the difference between being, you know, one block down from a different location, how it kind of created a different atmosphere already. So we were able to harness a lot of that. And I think when we do new projects, even outside of our typical radius, we spend a lot of time kind of trying to figure them out, you know, walking around in the areas, different times, looking at data behind it, talking to kind of the developers or owners, why they're doing it in this location, what they see as this identity, and not just what it is at the present, but kind of what it's been in the past and where it's going in the future. And so synthesizing all of that and figuring out what, the identity this place wants to be, how does it feel like, and I think the flip side of belonging is, you know, we think of belonging on an individual level, but at the same time, when we put something new into a neighborhood, do the people in that neighborhood feel like what's going in belongs there? Does it feel like it's additive to that community? And does it feel like when we look at everything else around that place, we say, okay, well, what's missing? What does this place need? And can we provide that in that context? Because the people who are going to use this place ultimately have, you know, this wide range of needs and there's always something that's not being filled somewhere. So figure out how do we kind of slot into that and just, just fill in those little gaps that might happen uh, within a neighborhood organically and just make it a more complete place from a strategic level. So that's nothing about aesthetics. Um, you know, nothing, the creative process is really driven by the analysis of a place. Mm-hmm. In the same way that we look at place, um, we think similarly for products, whether it's consumer products or services. And, and the dynamic is very, very similar. You know, what is this? What's the essence of what is it going to be? As we think about place, um, we always caution clients about starting with architects or mas the master plan. Uh, we really think about, you know, what is the master vision and whether that master vision is for the place and what it needs to be or the product, how you want to, or how we want to interact, you know, with that product. I think one of the things that we spend a lot of time on um, with clients and is that it's one trying to create an awareness of really what the, the consumer uh, is thinking about and what the consumer uh, is, is demanding from that product, that service and understands and how they connect with the brand. At the same time, 
we try and work with them on learning how to ask certain questions that they're maybe not used to asking uh, as it really relates to what the definition of that brand is going to be. As Brian talks about, you know, not only what, what it is today, but what it was uh, and what it needs to be in the future. And we get asked a lot by clients, what's the future of something? And as we think about that, we really do have to root it in the past. And how does that all play into the decision process of a, of a, a brand CEO? Coming back to that question of what are the things that they often miss when showing up on a design project's doorstep? Well, I think one of the, the critical pieces is understanding that the way that your brand is perceived or the way people engage with it, you know, you can't control all of it. You don't want to control all of it. And I think people feel more attached uh, to places, brands, et cetera, when they feel like they have some level of psychological ownership over it, that they feel that sense of belonging, like it's their place, it's their, their kind of allegiance, uh, that they want to really champion it. So kind of giving something to people that they want to run with rather than compl- giving them something that feels so kind of already tied up with a bow around it that there's no room for a little kind of interpretation, improvisation, et cetera. I think having that kind of, whether it's brand place, et cetera, having sort of like a looseness to it that says like, you know, it, this can be different things in different places. This has a certain flexibility to it. This is part of our approach. Here's what we're bringing to you. Now, where do you want to meet us? Is I, I think to me, and that's a very abstract way to look at it, but I think the idea that we, we always think about kind of trying to tie up every loose end before we deliver something. But I think it's those loose ends that, that give people kind of a route in and let them feel comfortable engaging with something versus something that can end up feeling kind of too polished and inhuman because of it and not like there's, there's a place for, to really belong, mm-hmm. whether we're talking about a physical place or a, a brand or an identity. Mm-hmm. And so um, based on everything we just talked about, I'd love each of you to give me an example of a a brand or probably a brand in a place or even maybe it's a development that you are inspired by that have checked many of the uh, the boxes that you all feel are um, are really on brand for you guys. And I'm going to allow you, between you, to have one project that's a Street Sense project. <laughs> so, you know, something that is a brand that's doing something something right. Uh, well, I'll, 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 I'll start and I'll start with something that's not a street sense project. So that'll give Brian the flexibility to do well, whichever one, uh, you know, he likes. I've been very intrigued by these um, places that what I would call are the connected tissue between neighborhoods and communities that currently exist. So whether you're in Manhattan and you're driving down the street and you know you're going, you know, between Hudson Yards and Chelsea, uh, what is the in-between? And this, hap- this, this exists in many cities, and the in-between areas are the areas uh, that we look at today that we don't even think about or, or we knew existed, but we didn't even know what their name was 20 years ago. Uh, but they were always those neighborhoods, and they're coming to life. And so thinking about these areas that are going to uh, have an opportunity to grow and to shine um, where people are going to move to because they can afford it or there's something interesting that's going to happen there. 
because we already know what the other, what's going on at the other place. So a lot of times what we're seeing is the newer things that are happening, the things that we think that are fresher or interesting, that are attracting and driving, you know, uh, people walking by and raising their eyebrows, stopping for a minute, looking in a window. Those things typically happen in the in-between spaces. So for me, what I think is very interesting are these in-between spaces. And I, I was in London last week, and I was um, you know, just walking between like the Hoxton and, and um, Hackney areas on East London, just the in-between spaces and all the things that are happening there. Um, I was talking to one of the owners of a um, hotel. They were talking about that they were not able to get the rug dealer uh, who has been selling rugs for 80 years you know, out of the storefront, and they had to build a hotel around it. And what were the things that they had to do that were going to drive something that was interesting that would make it work for the hotel and at the same time you know, not diminish the value of this rug dealer that had been there for you know, 80 years? So I would say for me, it's these places that are you know, in between uh, and where something is starting to happen. That's exciting. Kelsey? So am I, am I allowed, am I permitted to do a Traub project? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So I have a great passion for what has been created at Hudson Yards. And I think the big bang of all of the components are, are, have really come together there. And it, in, in many ways, it also started with community. It started with looking at the extension of the High Line, which both local New Yorkers love and tourists alike love. And it said, at the end of the High Line, what can we create here that ties it all together and has a gravitational force on Southwest Manhattan? And I think they've accomplished just a remarkable feat in that from all angles, from a cultural angle, uh, from creating 50% of effectively a new neighborhood, which is open to the public and is green space and is, um, in many cases, rarefied space in Manhattan. And there's a residential component, there's an office component, and then there's this beautiful retail base that has amazing restaurants and established brands doing their own versions of new and different things, and young brands um, coming to retail for the first time. Um, So I think it's just a a wonderful uh, kind of Venn diagram of everything. And including the digital native brands coming to life. So, all right, because there was a, there was a, a trial project in there. I'll, I'll, I'll allow two street sense <laughs> projects for Brian Miller. Take it away. Uh, okay. Well, I'm going to get in trouble because I wasn't going to name a street sense project at all. Uh, <laughs> I was thinking about. Um, That's fine too. I was thinking about uh, Cafe du Monde in New Orleans, uh, which is, uh, if you've ever been, it kind of serves coffee, beignets. Um, They'd open up a couple of satellite locations. They do like their chicory coffees, all the grocery stores, whatever. But their main location, and it's moved over the years because it was founded in like 1862. Um, so it's moved several times. But the anchor location that's been there for quite a while is, you know, just smack dab in the middle of, uh, you know, just right off the river in New Orleans on Decatur Street. And it's where everybody shows up. It's right across from the cathedral, the square. And it's, um, it's just the place you go. And it's just the anchor of an entire neighborhood that way. And they serve thousands of people a day. And it's just everybody goes and gets their beignets and coffee. And it's like the youngest, 
you know, people are so excited about the Meuniers. The oldest people go in, the coolest people, the most touristy people. It's just like one of those places that has established itself as such a part of the firmament that it's like a rite of passage. Someplace people don't just go once, they go back to. And it's also amazingly relevant today when you look at it. Like if you look at like the, you know, top 10 Instagram restaurants in the country or whatever, it's one of them. And it's not because they've tried to do something that's like successful on Instagram. It's because they've been doing something for over a hundred years and people feel so attached to it that it becomes this kind of iconic experience. Um, so that's, that's a place and there's, you know, similar kind of places around the country, but that's a place that I think like just feels as a brand, as an identity. It, it just feels so embedded in the place it's in that you can't imagine it not being there. Interesting. And, you know, I, I hear you all speaking, those three examples, there's, on, on the one hand, uh, hyper-gentrification, there is the places in between, I think you described it, and then there's a hundred-year-old legacy environment, and if you put them all three together, um, it's sort of the, the sort of quintessential uh, everything type environment, if that could happen. So if you think about those 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 components how do you see the world 10 years from now 20 years from now uh, is it going to be all hyper gentrification uh, c- coming up with um, angles on uh, sort of new angles on everything or is there is there is there a, are we able to have a world that has uh, that the, the piece that Brian Miller just talked about of the sort of the the age-old uh, love affair with an institution, the new um, and sparkly and, and, and beautiful and, and incredibly organized that Kelsey was talking about. And then you, Brian Taft, talking about sort of some, a bit of a hybrid, actually, of the 180-year-old uh, rug merchant with the hotel wrapped around him. How, what's the, wh- where are we going uh, with all this sort of design that's happening? So I think regardless of the design aesthetic, whether it's coming from the place of a heritage brand or coming from the place of creating something that is brand new out of the ground. I think in all of those different components, what we've talked about is areas within those places that people interact with one another. And whether that's a common area space or a cafe um, or a park, I think those are the elements that are that will continue to be key going forward. My sense is that people have a unique ability today and will continue in the future to be able to communicate with uh, one another individually and and directly and within groups and segments in very unique ways and potentially ways we, we haven't thought about. But being together is something that is universal, I think, something that's always been important to human existence and will continue to be. So finding these brands, whether it's a place or whether it's a product or whether it's a service or whether it's an activity, where people do interact, where people do come together, really the only reason to have places are for people to come together. So um, generally speaking, I think that that's what we're going to see. So the evolution of why people are together, what they're doing in those spaces, um, will continue to be you know, the, the paramount idea that's going to be driving these experiences. And I feel the same way for products. 
Uh, I think products really are an extension. Um, and in some ways, they are the brand. Uh, the brand is not the product. The product is the brand. And the ability to be able to access that brand through unique interfaces is going to be very important. Today, we think about bringing the brands closer to the people. Um, really, what um, we're doing is we're trying to bring the, the brands closer to where the people are going to be. And so depending on how we think about space, together with the dynamics of time and, and getting there, and then how products show up in these spaces, whether they're branded or unbranded, can be really, really critical to what I think is going to happen over the next 10 to 20 years. So 10 to 20 years, that's a good segue to uh, the final question, I think, which is, what are you guys eager to work on? What, what do you want to change next? That obviously applies to, to all of you. Um, Brian Miller, if there was a brand, and I urge you to name brands, name, name places, why not? We'll send this to them. Um, what, who do you think would benefit uh, from, from the expertise that you have? And, uh, and if you don't want to name brands, the, maybe there's a genre of, of company that needs to be um, jazzed a little bit, maybe brought into the 21st century. Do any of you have any thoughts about the future um, of this? I'm really excited. We're working on just just starting to dip our toe into kind of the the office world and in terms of uh, office lobbies, especially. So we've been doing a lot of work the past few years in multifamily buildings and their amenity spaces. And now we're looking at carrying that over to office buildings. And there's sort of this uh, kind of traditional hierarchy that's starting to crack a little bit in office buildings where those lobbies of the class A office buildings have always been there to impress the client. You know, it's a bunch of like high gloss marble and maybe some backlit glass or whatever. And like four <laughs> Barcelona chairs sitting there that nobody ever sits in and a piece of statement artwork that nobody ever gets near. And like, I, I think, what we're seeing is on one hand, I see a lot of like new bills, a lot of renovations where the lobbies just get whiter and brighter. But on the other side, we're seeing that crack and with a more hospitality kind of approach to a lobby where how does it start to involve more comfortable seating, more food and beverage, create these places for people to really spend time and be comfortable where I think it's, you know, people don't are starting to see that you don't need to have all that to impress a potential client anymore. That just making a space that people walk into and feel excited and happy to be in is maybe even more impressive than the lobby they've seen a hundred permutations of. That's a really good example. And especially, especially as, um, you know, kind of you look at the amount of square footage per, per worker going down dramatically every year. And so people just don't have kind of the, the space within their workplace that they used to. So how do you use these ancillary spaces to kind of give them that breathing room, give them that moment of respite, give them all these different places they need that they want to go spend time. And it sort of becomes a holistic environment rather than just the, the kind of walking path to the elevator. Yeah, I have a very good example of that. And it's amazing hearing you say it because I hadn't really put my finger on what it was. I was at JP Morgan, the investment bank, uh, a week ago, and the lobby was, as you described, uh, it was a whole sea of, of comfortable couches, and there was a coffee shop in the corner of the lobby. There was people handing out cookies. There was a little um, trolley with cookies going around. It felt like 
I was like, am I in the right place? Um, but they made a concerted <laughs> effort to try and make it feel more hospitality like versus, um, you know, I don't know, a sort of a rather more scary place. <laughs> and you, Brian, those places Tan. have always been kind of intimidating. Yeah, so, no, it was surprising. <laughs> handing out cookies, you know, they were, yeah. I was I was just waiting for them to give me a hug, you know. <laughs> uh, I, you know, along the same lines, I think the what's really, really interesting to me, I've become very passionate about, is this idea of work. Um, we saw a big iteration uh, with the advent of WeWork, which is uh, workplace uh, as a service or real estate as a service. But today we really think about uh, work in office environments. And the the reality is that, as Brian said, when you go into a restaurant or you go into a hotel and the service isn't good, then you're going to get up and leave. And the areas where service is really important, typically the experience for the people that work there is the absolute worst. So if you've been in the back of a hotel, um, there are a whole lot of uh, really bad fraternity houses that look a whole lot nicer. And so how do you create these special environments for the people that actually work in service industries, whether it's retail, whether it's the hotel industry, so that when the customer, you say you're not allowed to go behind this door, it's not because of OSHA reasons. It's you can't go behind this door because this is a special place only for the people that work here. And so if we're trying to drive service, why don't we treat our service people special? And I think people really don't think about that. They think about back of house, front of house. Well, what if back of the house was actually more special? So when we think about retaining and attracting talent, what are we really doing? And there's an opportunity with the environment that really can create brand ambassadors in a unique way. So I think traditional office, um, when we think about work, is something that is really evolving and we're really excited about. But this non-traditional office, non-traditional work is something that I'm, I'm really excited about. Else? Yeah, I think um, talking about uh, traditional from the standpoint of retail, um, where I think the pendulum will start swinging back over the next few years, is this notion of the department store and what it means. And for, for many, many generations, centuries, um, we have been shopping in marketplaces. And over the past 10 years, there has been a proliferation of of brands in really five years, brands that have built their business models on being purely direct to consumer. And I think when you take a step back and say, okay, how do you take those direct to consumer brands that originally only wanted to be online and you take, combine that with the power of, um, of a multi-brand store and amazing real estate, like a department store. Mm -hmm. And you say, how can these coexist together? And I think that um, I think there is a place for both in one house, and I, I think the consumer, the consumer wants that kind of exposure, and the young brands and the big brands alike get the marketing effect from from the young digital natives who are resonating with consumers in a very different way than maybe the established brands are. That's a good one. So, guys, uh, we've covered a lot of ground, and um, thank you so much for joining the safari and uh, brian miller will we'll let you get back to your day thanks so much for, for being with us uh, brian taff kelsey groom thank you so much okay thank you so much bye. for inviting us all right bye guys 
I want to take a second to explain to you why Traub is able to bring you the safari. We pride ourselves in being at the very center of a very global, very complicated consumer and retail landscape. And in our travels, as we help think, manage, and expand businesses in many different channels and geographies, we're able to meet and learn from some of the great minds in this industry. And it's really wonderful to be able to bring them to you. And in doing so, I hope that you, the listener, will be able to learn a little bit more about what we do at Traub as well. If you want to learn a little bit more about Traub, you can go to traub.io, where you'll learn a lot about everything that we do. If you're enjoying the safari, please do share it with your friends and colleagues within the industry. And please also don't forget to subscribe and like it.